Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in African Studies podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. I'm honored today to be in dialogue with my guest, Dr. Jason Stearns. Jason is Assistant Professor at the School for International Studies at Simon Fraser University and Director of the Congo Research Group at New York University. We are here today to discuss his new book, The War That Doesn't Say Its Name, The Unending Conflict in Congo, published by Princeton University Press in 2021. Jason, it's an honor to be in communication with you today. Thank you very much, Ari. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Uh, Where did you grow up? Where did you study? And what inspired you to become a research specialist focusing on Congo? So I am American, I guess, by citizenship, but I didn't really grow up in the United States. I was born in the United States and then moved to Switzerland at an early age where my father was a professor um, at a Swiss university. So I grew up mostly, I went to all, all of my schooling was at a public school in Switzerland. Um, and so I think that is the beginning of my interest in international affairs. I spent some time as a student in high school in in Latin America, in Chile. I spent some time after high school in Tanzania, volunteering at a research um, facility in central Tanzania. And so I think that just shows you that I was was really interested in international relations and international world and inequality and injustice in the world. And that's kind of what I studied when I went to school later in the United States. I went to did my undergraduate at Amherst College in Massachusetts, and then I did my PhD uh, at Yale University much later. I had quite a time, bit of time between the two. And when I graduated from Amherst, I wanted to take this interest forward in international relations, injustice, and so forth. And so I thought law school would be a good place to do so. Um, and so I applied for law school, I got in, and then I really didn't want to go to school anymore. I was, uh, I'd spent four years, I was, a, I was young still, I guess, 
and I wanted to get out and I felt it didn't make much sense for me to, to go and pursue a law degree in human rights, which was I was interested in at the point without having any real lived experience in um, um, places where there were massive human rights uh, abuses. Um, I mean, those obviously exist everywhere in the world, including the United States. But I, I was drawn to some of the places I'd lived before. And so basically by hook or crook, I got myself um, uh, an internship, an unpaid internship working for a Congolese human rights organization. And that only came about, I knew nothing about the Congo at the time. That only came about thanks to uh, Peter Rosenblum, who was the director for human rights clinic uh, at Harvard University, where I was supposed to go to law school. And I basically pestered Peter long enough that he, I think, picked up a phone, if I remember correctly, and called a local human rights organization in Eastern Congo, where he had worked for a long time, and asked them if they wanted an un unpaid volunteer. And so that's, to make a very long story short, that's how I came to uh, working in the Congo. Um, I traveled to Bukavu for the first time in 2001, where I worked for a local human rights organization, Arité de la Justice. Um, I lived uh, with the director of a local radio station there um, and that for a year. And then from there, at some point in that trajectory, I lost interest in or I thought that law and international law was not going to be the best vehicle through which either to express my interests or to bring about, um, you know, uh, to pursue justice um, uh, in the Congo. And so I got more interested in, in, in politics. I worked for the human rights, sorry, for the UN peacekeeping mission in the Congo for several years. Um, then I went to work for the international um, crisis group. And then finally I decided I wanted to take this uh, further to, I wrote a book on the Congo, always with this interest in trying to understand, trying to empathize, trying to dig deeper into what's going on. Uh, and then eventually I did, I went to Yale and pursued my PhD in political science. Uh, and so that is probably too long a story, but still making a very long story short. Mm. What inspired you to write this book? Um, well, this is, uh, this is, I think my PhD advisor would probably be surprised, but this is actually my PhD, although barely recognizable, I think at this stage. What inspired my PhD and what inspired this book is to understand why, after so many years, the conflict in the Congo has, has continued, has persisted, and how better to understand this conflict. Conflict in the Congo began, well, the, the precursors of the conflict began in March of 1993. And so we're 30 years almost into the conflict in the Congo. It's been a, it's a very long um, gruesome conflict. And so I guess the, 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 my, my curiosity, um, my passion was really driven by trying to understand why it's taking so long and, and what's behind it. What are the forces that maintain it? Where do you situate your book among current literature academic, and academic writing on Congo? Hmm. Well, there's literature and then there's academic writing. The you know, I was inspired by, um, I guess my inspirations in particular come from uh, two sources. One is from uh, Congolese themselves and the Congolese scholars who have written on the Congo. It's, it's there that you can really find 
the people who know every nook and cranny, every actor, uh, every twist and turn of the Congolese conflict. These are people like uh, Isidore and Daiwell, who wrote the great history of the Congo as a Congolese historian. This is people like Arsene Mwaka, who is currently a parliamentarian, but wrote about conflict in the Eastern Congo. Uh, and so uh, this is people like Georges Nzongola and Talaja, who is currently the Congolese ambassador to the United Nations, but uh, a long-standing and very well-known Congolese academic based in the United States. You know, th that's, you know, I, I wanted to write a book that those scholars could pick up and say, oh, here's somebody who actually, you know, understands not just the trajectory of the conflict, but actually understands some of the people in that conflict as they did. And so that was, I don't know if I, whether I managed that, but that's sort of one source of inspiration and one, I guess you could say, academic context for this, for this book. The other source, well, there's really three. The second one is the um, some of the the outside mostly western i would say academics who uh, mostly working during the cold war really pioneered this the uh, deep knowledge of congolese politics these are people of, of the belgian school like um benoit verhagen um uh, jean claude willam uh kuhn flassenroot more more recently who also, again, from an outsider's perspective, often drawing on big academic theories as well, really try to dig deep. This is in the United States. This is Crawford Young, Thomas Turner. Um, these are the greats, you know, and as every aspiring academic, you want to say those, those are the stars that you sort of guide yourself by. The third source of inspiration is are, is theoretical literature that doesn't deal at all with regards to, uh, with the Congo, but tries to understand civil conflict, conflict in general. And these are the people that you read when you're in graduate school. Um, and so the, you know, those are the theorists of civil war, some of whom I studied with, like Stathis Kalivas, uh, Elizabeth Wood, Scott Strauss. Um, those are some of the academic, academics uh, of civil war that I really look to for inspiration as well. Can you summarize your book's core argument for us? Sure. The, the book really has, there's two, I would say, moments in this book or two registers on which the book operates. One is a historical register. So this book, on the one hand, has an ambition of just telling the story of what happened um, after the peace deal in 2003. So the Congolese conflict began in Sirius in 1996. And then in 2003, there was a, a, a very large peace deal. It's actually called the, the Global and Comprehensive uh, Peace Deal. And that was supposed to bring an end to the war. And it didn't. In fact, war since then has escalated in many ways, fragmented. Um, and so it was telling that story, why the war didn't come to an end and what happened um, since, since that moment. The previous phase of the war, I also told in, an, in, a, in a separate book, Dancing in the Glory of Monsters, that I wrote before this one. And so my interest was now to try to extend that historical trajectory and just tell the story, what happened. The, the, um, and there the explanation is that the peace deal uh, contained in itself, and I'm happy to go into greater detail on this, but the peace deal contained in itself the seeds of a, a new phase of the conflict that 
the peace deal that was signed in 2003 was extremely unfavorable to what was perhaps the most important, at least militarily, the most important belligerent that was supported by the Rwandan government. That belligerent then defected from the, or a, a faction of that belligerent, the RCD, defected from the peace deal, relaunched war in the Eastern Congo, and then created the roots of the escalation that to a certain extent we still find ourselves in today. Um, and so it's telling that story and how it happened and how that was possible. Um, the, the second register or the second argument in this book is more of a theoretical argument, is trying to understand what the Congo can teach us about conflict in general uh, everywhere in the world. And so it's trying to, it's, it's a greater level of abstraction um, from that. Um, and, and this is where I'm interested in the process of fragmentation how the Congolese conflict has become extremely fragmented, the process of the creation of a military bourgeoisie in the Congo, um, and how those things, and those are things that also happened since um, the peace deal was signed in 2003, um, how those structural elements um, contributed to what I call the involution of the conflict. And by involution, what I mean is a turning inwards of the conflict. The conflict is stuck in a rut to a certain extent, uh, both materially in the sense that it's created constituencies, new constituencies that have an interest, a vested interest in making the conflict continue, and the symbiosis of belligerence. And so there's this weird, perverse element of the conflict in which um, the people fighting the conflict on either sides of the conflict actually all have a, an interest in making sure the conflict um, continues. And so all of this together is what I describe as a war that has become an end in itself, which is, I guess, in a fairly dramatic contrast with what war is in traditional sort of Clausewitzian terms in the sense that mm -hmm. war is one side trying to get the other sides to um, to become, to be victorious, to beat the other side. That's how I think even in common parlance, we understand war. You invade another country and you try to get the other side to succumb. That is not it, what it is in the Congolese case. It's become more of a perverse dance where uh, the various parties are all dancing to a similar tune, even if they're on other sides of the battlefield. Can you explain the con? go conflict for beginners to those who, who who are listening who might not be familiar with the events and the tragedy unfolding in congo could you kindly explain who is doing what to who in the congo conflict what is at stake in the congo conflict and why are the combatants fighting each other in the Congo conflict. Could you explain a simplified version of a very complicated civil war? Sure. Um, and I'll, I'll try to be simplified without doing injustice to sure. the question. So first of all, historically, the Congo, um, the Congo war began in 1996. The proper war began in 1996. And it had three main drivers at that point. One was a hollowed out Congolese state. At that point, it was called Zaire. Um, the former 
ruler of Zaire, Mobutu Sese Seko, who had been in power for 32 years by that point, and towards the latter part of his rule, ruled through weakness. And so he ruled in part by hollowing out the state and so that he could be the only center of power. But in the process of doing that, he really eroded the state institutions, including security services in the army. And so that um, the, the Congolese state uh, at, at that point um, had very little strength to resist any, any challenges to its authority. That's the first, I think, factor. The second factor were uh, local conflicts over power and identity that can be traced back, back to the colonial period. Um, especially in the Eastern Congo for reasons linked to the colonial past in particular, that pitted communities that perceived themselves as indigenous against communities that, that were perceived as foreigners, or as they could say in, in, in the Congo, as, um, as non-indigenous or non-autochtone uh, communities. And so these local struggles over power and identity were the second factor. The third factor and the trigger for the conflict in the Congo um, was were, were regional factors, in part because the Congo had become such a hollowed out state, uh, but in part also because Mobutu used um, or uh, used foreign insurgencies as part of his strategy to nettle his neighbors as part of his geopolitical power plays. By the 1990s, Zaire or Congo had become host to a plethora of different foreign armed groups. You had um, uh, Angolan armed groups based there. You had Ugandan, Rwandan, Burundian uh, armed groups based there. And the most important one of these was at that time, the Rwandan armed groups that had fled into the, across the border into Eastern Congo after carrying out the Rwandan genocide in 1994. So the perpetrators of the genocide after having committed the genocide in Rwanda, fled across the border and were based in refugee camps right along the border with Rwanda. And so the trigger for this conflict was, was in particular that situation, the refugee crisis of 1994 to 1996, um, that triggered a Rwandan invasion of the Eastern Congo. So the current ruler of Rwanda, Paul Kagame, invaded the Eastern Congo, but he did so uh, after having cobbled together a, a Congolese fig leaf of a rebellion that they supported. But it was, a, it was a continental war against Mobutu because Rwanda was joined by the Ugandans, who also wanted to get rid of these rear bases of armed groups, was joined by the Angolans that had a similar motive, and was joined by many other countries in Africa. Many countries in Africa were tired of seeing Mobutu there. And so they overthrew Mobutu. They put um, a Congolese in power, Laurent Kabila, in 1997. Laurent Kabila then fell out with his former backers because he didn't want to be their puppet. And so he kicked the Rwandans and the Ugandans uh, out of the country, um, this time splitting the continent because the Angolans, the Zimbabweans, the Namibians stayed with him. And the country was split into, into several parts. Um, that was, that's called the second war of the Congo. That was then brought to an end through this peace deal the 2000 and, um, 2002 peace deal, then in 2003, um, brought all of the belligerents together in a transitional government, uh, unified all of their armed forces, and led the country, created a new constitution, ushered in the Third Republic, and led the country uh, to its first democratic elections since the 1960s in over 40 years, in 2006. 
Um, so that's what the, the, the quote unquote Great Congo Wars, the first and second Congo Wars were about. And so you can see as the way I described it, they were about local, regional, national issues that had to do with a host and a multitude of issues. And this is one of the challenges with the Congo is keeping all this in your head at the same time. But those same three factors, the local, the national and the regional persisted really into the third phase of the war that some people call the third war. Most people just don't call it war at all because at this point, the country had transitioned for, in the minds of many, including the United Nations into a post-conflict phase. And so even though violence escalated in the Eastern Congo, um, the, the, the place was in theoretically in a post-conflict phase. And that's why my book is called The War That Doesn't Say Its Name. Mm -hmm because uh, most people would say that there is no, or many people were saying at the time, same time as you had now today, more uh, displaced people than ever before in the Congo, um, certainly more armed groups than ever before in the Congo, that you, it's a war that doesn't say its name. And so that I think, I'm happy to get into any of those individual moments or individual aspects, but that sort of summarizes both the trajectory as well as some of the forces at play. Why is the conflict in Congo so grossly ignored by Western media? Why does it receive negligible attention? Well, this unfortunately, I think the Ukraine conflict has brought this to everyone's attention. The, this is not just unfortunately a Congolese matter. There is a, a, a dramatic bias in the way that conflicts in certain parts of the world are portrayed depicted in media, both the way they're depicted, but most importantly, as you just suggested, the way they're not mentioned at all. So the Congolese conflict was only mentioned twice on the front page of the New York Times in 2017. Uh, the Syrian conflict in the same year was mentioned 240 times. That year, the Congolese conflict did not appear at all on US cable networks, except for a few brief mentions of George Clooney and mountain gorillas there. Um, this is, I think, broadly speaking, the case, even I, I just did the figures, I think, for this year, again, over the last year, the Congolese conflict has been mentioned only a few times in the New York Times, and that's the New York Times that has, had, does have some international coverage, uh, or at least Africa coverage. Um, it's people, you know, the Congo is on the periphery of the world. Um, the Congolese are, foreigners play an enormous role in the Congo since the creation of the Congo Free State in 1885. They've played an enormous role. But the Congo appears really on the periphery of US uh, interest and of world interest in general. You know, Afri even just Africa is um, currently, even though it's over a billion people, soon will be a quarter of the world's population, is only roughly 3% of world's GDP. Um, the budget of the entire Congo is smaller than the budget of New York University by, by, I think, twofold smaller than the budget of New York University. So all of these are just indicators to show you that the Congo is really on the periphery of the world's interest. They are, they are Black Africans uh, living in a place far away where other than extraction of natural resources, um, foreigners, especially the United States, Westerners have very few explicit interests. So I think that goes a, a fair way in saying why Congo is grossly ignored. Why are Congolese refugees not given the same priority and urgency that Ukrainian and Syrian refugees have been? Why are they not taken in by Western countries 
at the same proportion that other refugees are? Well, I think the, the question is, uh, most Congolese are, there are, are more displaced people in the Congo than anywhere else in the world except for Syria. There are currently 5.6 million Congolese displaced. Um, so, you know, that, that, that does it currently, there's more in Ukraine, but not by much. Um, most of those are displaced internally in the Congo. I think the question you ask is, is relevant for the Congo, it's all the more relevant for, um, for countries like Syria, uh, for other countries that have really been driving the migrants, um, what is often called the migrant crisis in Europe. Um, and I think as you know, the answer to your question is, I think has played out on our television screens in recent months is that, that there, there are double standards. We um, have no problem, or Europe has no problem opening up its borders to millions of Ukrainian refugees, but did not open its borders for, or many countries did not open their borders. Some did, I think Germany did go, did push the limits of what was possible uh, with Syrian refugees in particular, but most countries in Europe don't. The US has an appallingly low uh, number of refugees that it lets in, even with the Ukraine, it's not letting, I think it said 100,000 um, it's extremely low based on compared to what the need is. Um, and so I think, you know, identity politics has now come to the front and center of national politics in Canada, in the United States, across Europe. And this is really the wedge issue that is being played by political parties, especially on the right. But political parties on the left are extremely vulnerable to this as well. And so I think that is a core reason that um, I, so, so the answer to your question is an answer that deals with race and identity and how we feel in the West, we feel very uncomfortable about opening up our borders to people, especially of a different complexion than, uh, you know, than many people in, in the West, black and brown people. There's really no other way of understanding this. There are many Congolese who have come to the United States, but it's, you know, it's, we're talking uh, uh, in the tens of thousands here, not in the hundreds of thousands that could be benefiting this. And I think that this is just another indication of the degree to which um, we don't care. We haven't seen to be care. We spend a lot of money on these crises, but very little political attention. And that has to do, I think, a lot with uh, the politics in our countries. Can you compare and contrast President Barack Obama's foreign policy approach to Congo with that of President Clinton, President George W. Bush, President Donald Trump, and the current approach of President Joe Biden? Sure. I think the first point to make is that there is not a whole lot of contrast. Mm -hmm. The U.S. policy in these countries, U.S. policy in Africa has, you know, there's been fluctuations, important fluctuations, but broadly speaking, I think um, has been um, relatively steady in, in the sense that broadly speaking, the US has not paid much attention to Africa. It's a, a country once again, that it's considered to be on the fringes, on the periphery of geopolitical interests since the end of the Cold War, at least, um, that it pays, it pays lip service or it does pay, that's probably not fair. It pays attention to democratization where it can afford to, but the main impulse of American foreign policy in Africa has been uh, anti-terrorism policy. And so uh, uh, with large involvement in both in the Sahel and in Somalia. 
um, guarantee access to natural resources in terms of oil in Nigeria and Angola and, and other countries. Um, and then elsewhere, sort of a smattering of support for democracy and human rights and other things. Um, but I think the, the, the broad underlying tendency is one of apathy and a lack of serious interest in the African continent, especially since the end of the Cold War. Uh, not that during the Cold War we behaved very well, but there was much greater interest in Africa because it was seen as a battleground against communism. Um, now, having said that, I think that there are some points of, of variation. I think that, for example, George W. Bush had a huge push on, on health, healthcare in Africa with, with you know, quite some positive outcomes with his PEPFAR initiative. And that on the Congo, I think, is similar. Um, uh, Barack Obama, I think, um, uh, was also trying to push, especially on energy and electricity, um, with some other initiatives. I think these are not, you know, fundamentally uh, divergent paths or divergent policies in many cases they took. I think I would mention a few things with regards to the Congo, though, specifically where there is um, a difference. The one is on Rwanda. Um, because the, the African continent is on the periphery and there's not a lot of attention paid, individual, personal, we can get into this more, the case of Rwanda, individual personal relationships do matter sometimes a lot. And so during the Clinton administration in particular, there were many personal relationships that were forged between um, the Clinton administration, important people in the Clinton administration, and um, the, the leaders of post-genocide Rwanda, especially Paul Kagame and people around Paul Kagame. So Susan Rice, um, who was Africa director of the National Security Council, then afterwards, then later ambassador to the United Nations and national security advisor, um, very important person, felt very strongly about Rwanda and about Rwanda security imperatives and thought them to be very legitimate, um, even when I think they were not legitimate. Um, uh, other people, uh, Jindai Frazier, who was Assistant Secretary of State for Africa and also on National Security Council during Clinton's era, similar relationships. And so that mattered a lot and that faded with Obama. In Obama, you have a new generation of Africanists or Af people working on Africa, these to come into power, and you could see that they had much less patience uh, for um, the Ronan Patriotic Front, Paul Kagame's political party, and their arguments over the Congo. This was Johnny Carson, Assistant Secretary of State at the time. This was Russ Feingold, Senator, and the Special Envoy for the Great Lakes. And very, there was a big sea change in their attitude towards Rwanda at the time. So I think that's one area where there is quite a bit of difference. What role did the structure of the Congolese state play in exacerbating violence? Right. So this is where we uh, get to sort of the core of my theoretical argument in the Congo. So if you think of the Congolese conflict, um, you know, in 2003, you have this big peace deal that was signed. And all parties came together for a while, actually, the conflicts really died down and the different belligerents formed a new national army. And again, with the birth of the CNDP armed group, this was a splinter faction of the Rwandan back armed group in the Eastern Congo. And then in response to that, you have many other armed groups pop up either as allies to the CNDP or in particular 
as uh, mobilizing against the CNDP in the Eastern Congo. And all of this structure of the Congo state is really fundamental. And so I think a, a big push of my book is actually to recenter the Congo states to be at the heart of the conflict in the Eastern Congo. You know, we, uh, one can count and we have counted, uh, myself and colleagues have counted there to be 120 different, roughly speaking today, armed groups in the Eastern Congo. So it's easy to focus on you know, on the rebels, the guys, you know, ragtag rebels with the AK-47s walking around the countryside. What I try to do in this book is to is to recenter the focus on the Congolese state and understanding how the Congolese state can make that phenomenon possible. And so to answer your question, the structure of the Congolese state is characterized by high degrees of informalization of power and fragmentation of decision makers. And so power is largely dealt with informally and in an extremely fragmented fashion. Um, it's also, despite its ubiquity, so the Congolese state is everywhere you go, it's there, it's very limited. And so it's this lame Leviathan, as one uh, political scientist uh, described, it's a lame Leviathan, it's, it's everywhere, but extremely weak and hemmed in by actors in civil society. And so all of this together, informalization of power, the fact that power is largely managed through informal channels, a fragmentation of decision makers and uh, a very limited ability to act. Um, all of this makes it very difficult to enforce peace deals, to enforce the law, to co coordinate effective policy. Um, and so this has had furthered conflict, has, has led the Congolese uh, political elites to adopt an approach and a very opportunistic approach to conflict. It doesn't see conflict as necessarily a threat to it, especially because conflict is based a thousand miles from the capital. And so the, con the conflict literally is not a threat to their survival, but it's rather incorporated conflict into its mode of governance, mode of rule. And so I think that in answer to your question, what is, how does the structure of the colony state impact the civil war? It's made it much more difficult to get, to get rid of. In your perspective, how is a political science lens, lens on the Congo conflict different from a historical lens applied to the Congo conflict? In your view, why is a political science approach advantageous? And what insights does a political science approach offer that a historical approach does not? Well, in many ways, my approach is an historical approach. And so I am a political scientist by training. Um, but I, I think I'm a bit of an outlier in my own discipline, at least in the United States, in placing a, a strong emphasis on the understanding of context, historical detail, and the interests of actors involved. Um, my approach to causality and understanding why the conflict has persisted is similar to that of a historian. So I do what we call process tracing. That's a, an effort to understand causality by reconstructing the, the reconstructing causal sequences, conjunctures, mechanisms in a very similar way as a historian would. Um, what is different, I think, is that I'm also uh, interested in the theoretical implications of this, what the Congo can teach, what the Congolese conflict can teach us about conflict in general, what the broad structural factors at play are in the Congolese case. And that's why I'm, you know, I try to intervene also in this theoretical space, understanding how fragmentation, the creation of a military bourgeoisie, 
the involution of interest, the symbiosis of belligerence. That's my theoretical contribution. And that's what I would try out on other countries, I think, as, as well. And there's a part of the book where I try to apply these elsewhere. Finally, I would say, just because you mentioned my place in the discipline, um, um, I think it is interesting to think about why I'm an outlier, or I think I'm an outlier of the discipline. There, there are broad trends, I think, in the academy and political science that have pushed, that have made this so. Uh, there's been a decline in funding for regional studies. Uh, since um, the late days of the Cold War. So there's much less funding for people to actually do what I'm doing, to go out there in the field and to spend a lot of time in the field trying to understand the different actors. There has been a rise of the dominance of quantitative studies in political science over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, so much of the, I would say most of the most prominent work in the field and the work that gets rewarded the most by the discipline is, is of a quantitative um, nature. And then finally, and similarly, the pressure in the job market, um, there's enormous pressure in the job market and political science these days, and that favors PhD students who can publish before graduating. And I saw this myself when I was doing my PhD, and that's, it's very difficult to publish before graduating if you're doing field research. And so the people who had the students in my program, for example, who had articles out, were mostly either the political theorists or the people doing quantitative work who didn't that didn't require spending a year and a half in Eastern Congo before you could start writing and then submitting papers. Right. In your words, you write, the war was not pointless with an emphasis on not pointless. It was driven by actors with specific interests steeped in political particular institutional political cultures, much like Joseph Conrad Saylor, donors and diplomats were handicapped by their preoccupations, unable to see or understand these interests and cultures. Can you explain further what you mean by that observation? Yeah, so here I, this is in the, uh, the first chapter of the book where I talk about, and I, and I cite the example of Conrad, um, because Conrad is an interesting paradox. His heart of darkness, this is probably one of the first places um, that many uh, Westerners became acquainted with the Congo. The heart of darkness is a story, became then, became then the prototype or the template for um, um, uh, Apocalypse Now, the Hollywood movie. Um, it's, it's both a story about the ravages, the injustices of colonialisms. Conrad was uh, 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 adamantly anti-colonial, but also is deeply racist in the way that it portrays Africans, Congolese. It sees them as shadows on, this, on the edge, the periphery of vision, the savages. Um, and I think that's typical as well as the way the Congo was portrayed, even amongst the anti-colonial activists in the West at, at the time. Uh, and so I, I raise this because even today you can see a similar sort of sometimes dynamics at play. Um, it it's always struck me the degree to which outsiders, scholars like myself, humanitarians, politicians, diplomats, activists, often fail to stop and think deeply about and empathize with why people are doing what they're doing. And instead of that, they often project their own beliefs and own stereotypes onto that, what they believe to be an empty canvas. Um, and so I, I, what I'm trying to say in that quotation is that 
and this is one of the main pushes of my book is we need we, we any solution is going to be predicated on that is going to be predicated on understanding where people are coming from we can see this and we're capable of doing this we can see this happening in the ukraine right now you know mm -hmm. there's an entire cottage industry that's risen up with trying to understand what putin wants and who he is obviously we think that's an important it's very difficult to figure out but it's an important question my argument is is that we often short-circuited that question with regards to both the congolese actors as well as the rwandan actors um, and we often fail to understand and to grapple with, really grapple with what, who they are, what they're doing and what they want. How do normalization and essentialization as processes and as phenomena explain what's going on in the conflict in Congo? Right. So part of my book is um, arguing that in order for this war to have become an end in itself, this, this self-perpetuating war that is pushed forward by its own momentum, um, it is, that happens through material circumstances, through these structural changes that I mentioned, this rise of a military bourgeoisie, the fragmentation of Congolese state and society. Um, you know, and I think very often when we see, we talk about war economies, that's what we think about. People, there are, there's money to be made, there are profits to be made. But what I emphasize is that there's also, and this gets again to who, who we are as people, we're never just driven by sheer profit um, that people justify their actions to themselves in different ways. And, and so this is the, the constructivist moment in my understanding of the conflict, the ideational moment, putting an emphasis on ideas, norms, and that I think is key to understanding the conflict. And so Part of that is, uh, so this, these two factors, normalization and essentialization are, is, is, is part of that. And they push in opposite directions. And so normalization of, of violence is this process by which we ignore violence. We look the other way, it becomes normal, it becomes acceptable. And that's happened both in the West, as we described, we look the other way, we don't see it. Um, it becomes insignificant. That happens to, with regards to much of the world, which is why there's been such a outrage, I, I see such an outrage even amongst my Congolese and other African friends about Ukraine, not because Ukrainians don't deserve our empathy, but because we don't provide it to other people who are in exactly similar circumstances. Um, and so that normalization is part of what's happened from Westerners, from outsiders, but also from Congolese. Um, the war in the Eastern Congo is, is, is awful, it's, it's gruesome. My WhatsApp feed on a daily basis is bombarded by dozens of images of mutilated and dead bodies because I work on this conflict. Um, but in the capital, Kinshasa, it's an afterthought amongst politicians, uh, amongst the, in the population, I would say. Um, it's normalized. It's just the way things are. Essentialization pushes in the, in the other direction. This is something that often happens amongst the protagonists of the war, not the people who are bystanders, but the protagonists. They see the, the violence to be part of who they are. Um, and this also drives the conflict forward. This is um, especially the case, I think, for uh, issues around belonging. So um, the, the uh, as I mentioned before, uh, who is and who is not really truly Congolese really gets to the root of a lot of local conflicts in the Eastern Congo. And so this essentialization of who we are and who is really Congolese and who is not Congolese is really a core part 
of this issue, but also amongst the great power interests involved in this as well. Rwanda, for example, it, uh, much like the United States in its own conflicts, especially in the war on terror, Rwanda perceives any threat, no matter how small from the Eastern Congo to be uh, existential. Uh, almost, and they have actually, Rwandan security advisors have quoted Dick Cheney's 1% doctrine. And Cheney's 1% doctrine is, even if there's even a 1% chance that something could be a threat to the United States, we have to treat it as an absolute certainty. That was the way that Dick Cheney dealt with the threat of terrorism in the United States. And that's the way that Rwandans deal with the Eastern Congo. So even if something seems to be very remote and very um, inoffensive even, Rwandans will awful, would often engage with actions that seem to me, to many, as to be disproportionate, exaggerated. And that's because of who they perceive themselves to be. That's because of the, also their past, the genocide, and so on and so forth. So this essentialization of identity is also key in understanding the trajectory of the conflict. And so together, both having some people look the other way and normalize conflict, and other people really believe that conflict is really part of who they are, this has rendered the conflict uh, all the more intractable. What was the autochthony issue? How did it engender violence in Congo? Well, yeah, this is, I, I think, uh, refers to exactly that. So autochton, or it can be also said indigenous, indigeneity. Autochtony is this notion that there are some people who belong. So it comes from the Greek word chdonos, which means earth. Some people belong to this earth and some people do not. Some people are truly Congolese and some people are not truly Congolese. And you can, in my conversations with my, my militia in the Eastern Congo, they will refer to this. They will, they will grab a, a fistful of soil and say, our magic, because they believe themselves to be invincible to bullets, our magic comes from this soil. And they, and by they, they often mention, they often mean um, the Kenya Rwanda speaking people of the Eastern Congo, they are not of the soil, and so therefore they do not belong here. And what they this goes back, um, and I have to open in a historical parenthesis here, but this goes back to the colonial period. During the colonial period, there were various waves of immigration from neighboring countries, especially Rwanda and Burundi, into the Eastern Congo. Um, some of these immigrations were natural. They happened because of the consolidation of kingdoms in those two countries and people who fled that consolidation process. That's the case for the Banyamulenge of South Kivu province, for example. But in some cases, the, the Belgian colonial power actually um, themselves brought hundreds of thousands of people from Rwanda to the Eastern Congo to work on mines, in mines and on plantations for them. Engaging in a process of demographic engineering that has a deep legacy today. So it's roughly, we believe around 300,000 Rwandans were brought during the colonial period to a very small patch of land in Masisi territory, just outside of Goma, where there's an enormously rich volcanic soil and where um, Belgians and other um, out Westerners had large plantations, ranches. These are rolling hills that you know, look like Switzerland, fantastic uh, cattle herding, coffee, tea country. Um, and so by doing this, uh, at the same time, the Belgians ruled through indirect rule locally. And so they ruled through ethnic uh, leaders, through tribal leaders, through local customary chiefs. Um, and so the fact that they ruled through customary chiefs, they, they used ethnicity as a way to rule. 
And yet they brought in people who are not from there, created a very combustible combination in the sense that these Rwandans arrived in a place that wasn't theirs and to which they had no right because they had no customary chiefs there. And at in, since independence, really, this combination of, uh, of an understanding of the fact that you need to be native to have rights, you need to be native to have access to land, and this notion and this presence of many, many um, Kinyarwanda speakers or people whose, whose distant ancestors came from another country has created waves and waves of violence in the Eastern Congo. And something that's never been comprehensively dealt with. Um, and I think this is a real failing of the peace process that uh, there's people have not been courageous enough. And by people, I mean Congolese leaders, um, outside uh, in, in, uh, donors, diplomats have not been courageous enough to put this on the table and to say, this has to be dealt with. Who is a Congolese and who isn't Congolese? This goes to the core of many of the insurgencies in the Eastern Congo. You write as follows. If there is a conspiracy to keep Congo poor and weak, the economic evidence suggests that it would not be either only Western or piloted by governments, rather the liberal peace-building approach opened Congo up to private capital, which obtained mining deals for bargain prices, taking advantage of the poor regulatory framework in the Congo and the opacity of the international financial system. This ended up creating few jobs for Congolese and leaving little profit in the country. And while the multinational capital has, while multinational capital has benefited considerably from the peace process in Congo, there is also little evidence that these companies engineered it or that they benefit from continued violence in the country. Ironically, the public focus during much of this period was on industrial mining, but on conflict minerals, which NGO activists have linked to the conflict in Eastern Congo. Organizations such as the Enough Project and V-Day were able to galvanize enormous attention for the Congolese conflict by focusing on two themes, sexual violence and conflict minerals. Weaving these two together, they explained the conflict in a more digestible fashion, at the same time linking it to American consumers, consumers and their use of electronics containing Congolese tin, tungsten, and tantalum. They crafted slogans like, don't you don't want your cell phone to fuel war in the Congo? Tell Obama. Can you elaborate on on such? Right. So if you, um, I think many conversations with activists, Congolese and outsiders bring up this issue, this notion of a conspiracy to keep the Congo weak and divided. Uh, that the Congo is rich and because it's rich, people want to maintain conflict in the Congo in order to better profit from it, to better extract um, wealth from the Congo. Um, on, on the face of it, it's logical. The Congo is extremely rich. The Congo produces is the largest producer of copper in all of Africa. The Congo is the largest producer of cobalt, a mineral that we need for batteries and rechargeable and electric vehicles in the whole world. Mm -hmm. So the Congo is an extremely important place for mineral extraction, that, that's, that's definitely true. Um, the, however, if you take a close look at the way investment's been structured, the way decisions have been made, it doesn't reveal um, a, a, a conspiracy by Western governments to keep the Congo conflict. 
Rather, what I argue, the mistake was that the approach taken by outsiders during the peace process um, ended up um, not really grappling with the core issues and introduced new elements into the mix that actually exacerbated the problem. I'll explain. So the liberal peace building theory holds basically that in order to bring to an end to a conflict, you need to have a peace deal and then you need to implement democracy and economic liberalization, right? It's liberal, right? So it's, it has this liberal impulse, both in terms of the political sphere you hold elections, it's through elections that people can come through a consensus uh, and the government can be held accountable and so forth. And in the economic sphere that the free market will end up freeing uh, forces that will drive growth. Uh, and that growth in itself will then also help to hold people accountable, uh, the government accountable. You have the growing middle class, and that middle class would then hold the elites uh, to account. That's, that's the theory. That's the theory and that was what was applied in the Congo. And so during the peace process, the peace process obviously had that template, um, the 2003 peace deal forged new democratic institutions and went, went to elections, donors pumped in a lot of money into, you know, the, these new institutions as well as into civil society. And at the same time, the World Bank and the IMF in particular, as well as other donors came in and then push for liberalization of the economic space. And this in the Congo was extremely important because the Congo had been, uh, was run as a nationally run planned economy under Mobutu for a long time. And so Mobutu had nationalized the mining industry, he had nationalized many parts of the national economy with disastrous effects. So when you, when they, this was then liberalized in 2002, 2003 and onwards, um, what happened is that almost overnight you had enormous amounts of foreign direct investment being pumped in, especially into the mining sector. You know, very, else, very little else was terribly profitable in the Congo, banking, telecommunications uh, as well, but it's really those sectors that were the most profitable and with mining first and foremost amongst them. And so, you know, what happens when you pump in enormous amount, billions of dollars of foreign direct investment in a very short period of time at a time when the country was democratizing? Well, what happened is, is that the, the, these new elites um, uh, captured quite a bit of this money. And so money injected into a fledgling democracy is not generally speaking a good idea, especially if there's very few checks and balances in how that money is spent and, and appropriated. And so billions of dollars were went missing. Much of that money was captured by um, people in the governments and people in the political elites. And that then undermined the, the accountability of that government. Um, uh, exacerbated inequality and poverty and undermined, fundamentally undermined uh, democracy. And so I think um, that was, if there is a conspiracy, it's a conspiracy to uphold the liberal peace building model uh, and, and not necessarily for Western governments to exploit the Congo. Um, I think that today, I think it might be slightly changing in the sense that uh, Western countries are beginning to get worried about Chinese investment in the Congo. But up until very recently, um, you know, there were very, so right after the peace deal, American companies did get involved in the Congo, but then very quickly Chinese companies came to the fore. And today, a majority of mining companies in the Congo are actually Chinese with the exception of the most important one, which is Swiss. Uh, but there are no major American mining companies in the Congo, none. There are no major um, Canadian mining companies left in the Congo or British or French mining companies left in the Congo.
Um, and so I think that it's a fundamental misunderstanding about how international capital works. I think the conspiracy wasn't a conspiracy. It's just the way that peace building was applied to the Congo and then the forces at work. Uh, and these forces don't require a conspiracy of men sitting in smoke-filled chambers. All they required is for the dominant mode of organization of the international system, which is you know, a neoliberal free market uh, uh, um, system to be applied in the Congo. And that happened, I think, and that was part of, that's what then had a disastrous effect. And I think that many uh, activists, as, you, as I say in that quote that you read, didn't understand this and they didn't understand the nature of the real threat in the Congo. So yes, of course, uh, you know, artisanal cobalt, uh, sorry, artisanal uh, coltan chains in the Eastern Congo contribute to violence in the Eastern Congo, but they contribute very little to the national economy. And if you wanna reform the state, and I think that's what you really need to do in the Congo, then you need to look at these broader uh, structural forces at play and target them. Understood. Can you explain how the history of Congo unfolded from the reign of Joseph Mobutu to the outbreak of civil war in the 1990s? Yes. Um, so I mentioned previously, there's three factors that really drove the war mm -hmm. in Eastern Congo, the, the local, the national, and, and the regional. Yeah, starting in the 1970s, so Mobutu began in power. He he was um, he carried out a coup and came to power in 1965. He was very much in power even before that, but officially came to power in 1965. Um, and then in, in his initial phase of rule that we often forget today, he ruled through strength. He was a strong man, and uh, he created a state that actually was quite functional um, with large healthcare uh, sector with a strong army that deployed peacekeeping missions in different parts of Africa. And it was really the envy of parts of, of Africa. If you look at pictures from this time, it's quite remarkable. And then what happened is, is that that system went sour and started to fall apart in the mid 1970s. Um, when Mobutu became, a variety of things happened. You had the OPEC oil crisis, you had broad international structural factors, um, but you also had Mobutu's paranoia that got the better of him. Um, afraid of, uh, afraid of threats from his own security services and his own political elites, he started um, ruling through weakness rather than strength. And this meant pitting, creating a proliferation of different security services and administrative services, pitting them against each other, rotating people down around on a, on a constant basis, making sure nobody stays in power in one place for too long, using ethnicity increasingly as a means of rule, pitting people against each other. And so this, as I mentioned before, really hollowed out the Zairean state. Uh, at the same time, copper prices at some point that was they were booing the economy um, declined and he lost and he lost his ability to dole out largesse in the ways that he had done before. And so this, all of these factors together led to a decline of the Zairean or Congolese state and precipitated um, the fall of his rule. The, the, I think the, a key factor towards the end, uh, he opened up for multi-party democracy in 1990, and a key factor in that was also the end of the Cold War. And throughout Africa, you had um, you had a, a, a dem democracy movements swept throughout Africa. You had a sovereign national national conference first in Benin and then in other countries, and eventually then in Zaire in 1992, 1993. 
Uh, and so this, these ge broad geopolitical changes, the end of the Cold War, really then was the nail, the last nail in Mobutu's coffin. Um, well, besides the fact that he himself also was very sick and terminally ill and then died of cancer short, shortly after he, he fled the country in 1996. And so that was the hollowing out of the Zairean state um, uh, and the end, the impact that Mobutu had. But without going back through its history, local conflicts over power and identity were key and regional politics, as I mentioned before, were key as well um, in the creation of, of the civil war. And so when the civil war began, sorry, it wasn't really a civil war because it was an international war. When the international war began in, um, in mid to late 1996, all of these factors came to play. The Zarian army fell apart. Um, local armed groups um, were used by the Rwandans to as part as their fer de lance, so as the military vanguard of their movement, were Congolese um, of Kenya Rwanda speaking Congolese. So these people who belong to these communities that were perceived as foreigners and have been treated as foreigners for much of this, much, much of this time. So Congolese Hutu and Tutsi were a core part of this uh, rebel movement called the AFDL that invaded in 1996. Um, and they were backed by the Rwandan government. And so that's, it's that triple helix really of state weakness, local struggles over power and identity and regional intervention that, that led to the descent into war in the mid 1990s. Can you explain to us who are Viraya Mutambaki? And what does the name mean? Can you explain the significance of the name Raya Mutomboki? And can you explain who the Raya Mutomboki are? Right. So this is then, I in, in my book, I the way I proceed is I just try to describe the broad trajectory of the conflict, understand the broad structural factors at play, understand the Congolese and the Rwandan states and their role in the conflict. Um, and then I lay, lay out my theoretical argument. And then after I do that, I, I then do three, um, I have three chapters where I really focus in on several armed groups and try to, to understand them better. This flip side of the conflict, not looking at the Congolese state, but looking at the people who oppose the Congolese state, these military insurgencies. One of them is the Raya Motumboki. Um, Raya Mutumboki, which is uh, Swahili, Raya in Swahili means citizen um, uh, or civilian. And Mutumboki is, means in anger. I mean, so these are angry citizens is, is mm -hmm. what it's called. It's a movement that arose um, in 2000, roughly speaking, or came to prominence really roughly speaking in 2011 in the Eastern Congo. Um, in rural areas of the Eastern Congo uh, uh, um, as a response, as a self-defense mechanism. That's really, I think, um, in, you know, it, one of the, the, the trends or one of the, 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 the aspects of many of these armed groups, as I said, there's 120 of them in Eastern Congo, is this notion of self-defense. They are almost, many of them are born out of self-defense. And if you talk to almost any of them even today and you ask them, well, why are you there? They'll say, we're here. You know, we're here to protect the population. We're here for self-defense. And the Raya Mutumboki at its origin was exactly that. They were born when the Congolese army um, uh, withdrew from certain parts of the Eastern Congo during a process they called regimentation. 
there was a process actually that was attempting to deal with um, this CNDP movement that uh, was the, at sort of at the epicenter of escalation in Eastern Congo. So the Congolese army withdrew from certain rural areas in an effort to rationalize and to restructure its army, armed forces uh, in 2011, leaving a security vacuum in these areas and the security vacuum that was filled by um, foreign armed groups in particular, um, uh, especially Rwandan rebels that were based in this area and left the local population um, exposed and vulnerable. And in response, the local population, and this especially was in the territory of Shabunda in the Eastern Congo, um, started mobilizing. Um, and in mobilizing, they, uh, they hark back to traditional rights um, that um, traditional rights that invoked uh, um, invincibility or they believed and made their warriors invincible. And so they gave them what they called dawa. Dawa is uh, Swahili for medicine, but they gave them this traditional medicine. Sometimes it was an amulet. Sometimes it was medicine that they would cut into with a razor into the skin and then scrub into the skin that they believed uh, made them invincible, especially towards foreigners. And again, really invoked the power of the earth, the power of indigeneity, the power of belonging. Uh, and giving them that, and giving them that 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 in this invincibility, and the curious thing about the Raya Mutumboki is that it was much like the communities out of which it it, it emerged. It had very little internal hierarchy. There were some commanders, but they had a hard time controlling their troops. Um, but its real strength was this belief in invincibility and the belief in self-defense, and it spread like wildfire. So these local self-defense militia were able to do what many with the Congolese army hadn't been able to do, which was push these Rwandan rebel groups out of many parts of rural Eastern Congo, um, crack down on them, um, uh, get rid of them sometimes in very brutal ways. And they did that because people just, you know, they would, they would take whatever they had, a machete, a machine gun, a bow and arrow sticks, and they would join this Raya Motumboki movement almost as a, at like a fever. Um, that's how it sort of spread. Uh, and was extremely successful, but also then, as the case is with many of these Congolese militias, then ended up itself becoming abusive. And so to, even today, some 10 or 12 years later, there are still Raimotumboki movements in the Eastern Congo, but very few of them have popular legitimacy. They're not seen as, um, uh, they're not seen as defending the population anymore, but rather they are preying on the local population, taxing them and abusing them. And unfortunately, that's the trajectory of many of these armed groups is Dawa. Can you explain this concept in relation to the Raya Mutomboki? Yeah, so Dawa is, uh, as I said, Dawa is Swahili for medicine. And um, it, uh, I mean, even in, in regular Swahili, Dawa means refers to regular medicine as well. But in this particular case, Dawa is the special medicine, the customary medicine, usually made and applied by uh, a, a customary doctor a traditional healer or a witch doctor. I don't like the word witch doctor too much because it comes with the connotations it has, but applied by what they call Muganga. Uh, so a traditional healer who knows how, who knows the recipe, who knows how to do this, uh, who knows the rights. And in those rights and in that recipe, there's a lot of power. And it's, again, it, it invokes custom and it invokes tradition. Uh, and in the case of some places, it invokes uh, circumcision rituals. 
and and all of this is wrapped together then and, and and you know you see it as people really truly believe it, pr it provides them some sort of power in some cases invincibility against bullets uh and it's that belief more than anything else in the case of Mutumboki, they gave it they gave it strength the belief in this doubt what catalyzed the m23 mutiny can you explain the run-up to this event and the consequences of this event? Yeah, that's actually a very topical question because even as we speak, there is a, a new M23 mutiny starting in the along the Rwandan and Ugandan border in the Eastern Congo. Um, so the M23 mutiny is again gets sort of to the epicenter of escalation in the Eastern Congo um, and the reason why violence did not come to an end with the peace deal in 2002. And so again, to go back in 2000 and um, in 2000 and uh, in 2002, a peace deal was signed in 2003, all parties came together and the peace deal was not favorable to one part, one of the major belligerents, the RCD, the Congolese Rally for Democracy, that controlled, roughly speaking, a quarter or a third of the East Congo, including many large cities, Bukavu, Goma, Kisangani, um, and were supported by the Rwandan government. The problem is the RCD was very, very unpopular. They were perceived to be foreign occupiers. And the entire logic of the transitional government, the peace deal, was that it would end in elections. And the RCD knew they were going to lose a huge amount of that. And you could see this. They went from controlling a third of the country during the rebellion to, roughly speaking, 2% representation in national institutions uh, at elections. And so they saw this coming. And a faction of the RCD then broke off and in 2004 started uh, what would then eventually become the CNDP rebellion led by the charismatic uh, rebel leader, Lahong Kunda. Um, and it was only in 2008, after enormous effort, displacement, violence, that the Congolese army was able to bring an end to the CNDP, mostly actually through diplomatic pressure on Rwanda that had backed the CNDP. Um, and the reason I mentioned the CNDP is that the CNDP was then integrated into the national army, into the Congolese national army, but allowed part of the peace deal was that it would be allowed to stay in the Eastern Congo uh, because the CNDP, largely speaking, were people from the Kenya Rwanda speaking communities, Hutu, Congolese Hutu and Tutsi communities, they wanted to stay um, close to those communities. And that also allowed them to maintain their own networks within, an arm, within the army. And so this allowed them to become an army within the army. Um, they did so. Um, but uh, and then they actually, their strength was, was increased almost by, by being integrated into the National Army because they then had benefited from logistics of the National Army, even as they sort of maintained their parallel structures within that army. And so the Congolese government wanted to undo this and get rid of that. And they pushed, uh, they pushed to redeploy the CNDP uh, networks across the country to dismantle them and to send them to different parts of the country. And it was that push to dismantle the CNDP networks that then sparked the M23 rebellion. And so the M23 rebellion is sort of part of a lineage of rebellions uh, stemming from the Congolese Hutu and Tutsi communities backed by the Rwandan government that goes back to the very beginning of, and even before the first Congo wars. And so again and again, this motif keeps on coming up of Congolese Hutu and Tutsi communities backed by the Rwandan government 
uh, as a center and as sort of uh, getting to the core of the rebellion. There were other factors as, as well in launching or in triggering the M23. One was um, the conviction of Tumalubanga uh, at the International Criminal Court and one of his deputies, Bosco Ntaganda, was one of these ex-CNDP leaders in the National Army. He was afraid that he would be next on the list, that he was, in fact, there was a big push by diplomats to get him arrested as well. And so the M23 that he helped lead was also part of his effort to preempt his own arrest. How did the M23 fall apart? Can you explain how this happened? So this gets to um, a sort of a key shift, I think, in, in dynamics of the Congolese conflict. And so the, the M23 was uh, lasted from early 2012 until November of 2013. At that, their height, they occupied the town of Goma uh, in, um, in late 2012 for uh, about a week. Uh, and so it was a it was a significant movement, and it benefited enormously from Rwandan support. Uh, Rwanda was afraid of losing a foothold in the Eastern Congo. It saw Eastern Congo as being part of its zone of interest. You know, much like the United States sees parts of the Western Hemisphere as being a, its area of interest, much like Russia sees parts of Central Asia. Eastern Europe being an area of its interest, it's not too different from how Rwanda sees Eastern Congo. And so they, um, uh, the Rwandan backed this M23 rebellion considerably. And it was really Rwanda, that backing that was both the strength as well as the Achilles heel of the M23. And the re reason I say that is because of a lot of work that was being done by um, uh, colleagues of mine, including myself, um, on this Rwandan support, it became pretty clear to everybody what was happening. And this was in quite distinct difference with the CNDP. At the time of the CNDP, it was hard to convince diplomats that the Rwandans were backing the CNDP. Uh, I was, during part of that time, I was the coordinator of the UN group of experts, and I was talking to diplomats, showing them evidence and talking, and it was very difficult, especially British and American diplomats, it was quite difficult at that time to convince them that Rwanda was behind the CNDP. A very different situation with the M23. As I said before, I think that there had been a change in, in staffing and in leadership in places like the State Department in Washington. It was a different day. It was much more difficult for Rwanda to justify its actions. And uh, I, the, especially the American, but also the British government were investing resources to find out what was going on that they hadn't before. And so the US, I, I believe, had signals intelligence don't know that for sure, but I'm fairly talking to American diplomats. They say they had firm proof that the, the Rwandans were supporting the M23. They never said that with regards to the CNDP before. Um, and so the US took action. Barack Obama got on the phone with Paul Kagame, uh, a very senior Senator Russ Feingold was appointed as US Special Envoy to the region and put enormous amount of pressure on the Rwandans. Hundreds of millions of dollars of foreign aid were suspended to the Rwandan government. That had a huge impact. And eventually, the Rwandan government pulled the plug. So yes, the, there were other factors involved. The Congolese government mounted a, a serious military challenge. They received support from the sub-region, so the South African government, the Malawian government, the Tanzanian government sent forces as part of the UN Special uh, uh, Intervention Brigade. Um, 
to to stem the advance of the M23 that helped as well. But I think the I believe the, the, the critical factor, the key factor was um, uh, pressure on Rwanda and eventually Rwanda pulling the plug. Can you explain what, if anything, makes Congo unique as a failed state, quote unquote, relative to other failed states? Um, I, I'm not a huge fan of the term failed okay. state just because there's part, part of the Congo works very well. It just doesn't work yeah. in the way we expect it to work. Um, I, I understand. Yeah. So um, the Congo, actually, the, the state is, is very functional for a certain elite and for certain people, both insiders and outsiders. Yeah, it's who's that, and it's benefited enormously. They've benefited enormously from that. So I think that um, it's this lame Leviathan uh, metaphor that I prefer because the, everywhere you go, you go to the smallest village in Eastern Congo, and the state is there. It's very present and it's often very heavy handed, but it's lame in the sense that it's very ineffective and inefficient and dysfunctional. Um, how is it different than other states that have similar characteristics? I think that the Congo is, is quite similar uh, to some of those states. Um, you can mention Afghanistan, you can mention Yemen, you can mention Somalia, um, in the sense that um, it's incorporated conflict into as a mode of governance in much of the country. I think the degree of symbiosis is in, is between Congo and some of those some of those armed groups is can, is, is is quite large, but you have that symbiosis as well in places like Mali, um, between central government and, and armed forces, Nigeria in a similar way, um, and so I think that what makes the Congo um, what allows that sort of system to, to happen, I think, is in part the sheer size of the country, that you can have enormous violence, but it's not violence that threatens the survival of the ruling elites because they're so far away and there's no road network con connecting the east to the west of the country. Capital Kinshasa, you can get in a Boeing 737 and fly for two hours until you get to the capital Kinshasa from the east. It's a very long way. Um, and, and so I think that facility, but you have, you know, that's a similar situation in, in Afghanistan, Sudan, South Sudan, especially, um, and, and, and elsewhere as well. So I see, I see a lot of similarities, I think, with uh, many other countries with similar characteristics. In what ways have the first and second Congolese civil wars been similar or different from other phases of civil strife within Congo or Zaire? It's hmm. a good question. I think that for Mobutu, for all of his failings, um, didn't suffer this kind of wide-scale strife, even though he set the stage for conflict. He didn't suffer this kind of conflict. And so you had you know, you had uh, insurgencies in the mining rich copper belt in the south of the country in 1977, 1978, the Shaba, the wars, the Shaba wars, they were called at the time. Um, and they were dealt with very swiftly, by mostly by foreigners, mercenaries and, and, and foreign armies, legionnaires uh, and, and foreign governments that put them down. Uh, so the Zairean Congolese state helped with that, but foreign governments did as well. Mm -hmm. But conflict wasn't part of governance for Mobutu. Um, in the sense that it wasn't integrated, his army was relatively small, he pitted them against each other, 
they made money off the local population, but they didn't profit from, there wasn't the same sort of widespread conflict as you, as you have now. Conflict in the Congo is quite widespread. And if you look at the Eastern Congo in an area roughly the size of California, much of the rural area is under uh, the influence or the control of uh, an armed group uh, or a militia. That did not exist at the time um, of, of Mobutu. Another, I think a, a, key, a, a key difference between the phase of the conflict now and the phase of the conflict, and I talk about this in the book, and the phase of the conflict in the early parts of the war. During the early war, the, the, the purpose of the conflict was to win. I mean, it seems almost like a banal thing to say. <laughs> the purpose of war is often seen as winning, as defeating the other side. When the AFDL rebellion overthrew Mobutu in 1997, that was their purpose. Their purpose was to, what they said, to liberate the country. Uh, when the Great Congo War, the Second Congo War broke out, the purpose there too was to win, was to gain territory, to control territory. To That's not really the purpose anymore. The, there are no armed groups in the Eastern Congo that seek to overthrow the government, to my knowledge. Um, even really to control large cities is not, or secede from the government. What most of those groups are doing is surviving. They're out there um, uh, living. Violence has become, and conflict has become a mode of life. And for the government, part, conflict in part has become a means of governance as well. And so um, the, a lot of the way you make money in the army in particular, and the security services more broadly, is by being in conflict. And it's hard to make, to make money if you're not in conflict. You can even see this in the way that people are paid within the National Army. Um, they're, it's, they're paid, they have a statutory salary that they uh, have a right to no matter what. It's extremely small. Even the highest ranking general in the Congo makes less than $200 a month. Um, and yet they have villas and they have cars and they have wow. four cell phones. The way they make money is by getting side payments, by getting bonuses. These are legal bonuses, but they're at the discretion of their own officers. And so this allows their officers to keep control over them. And they make money by through illegal fashions. So by being deployed in a mining rich area or close to a border or in a place where there's a major road and all of these things they can tax. They make money through, through taxation, through extortion, really. Uh, and then kicking back money to their superiors uh, who, uh, so, if, you know, it's uh, every, every unit on the ground that makes money kicks back a part to their superiors that deploy people based on how much money they can main, make in different places. And so um, uh, conflict has become a way of life, both for combatants at the local level, as well as for many people in the national security services. You quote Colonel Pierre Masudi as saying the following to you, this war is not what you think it is. What did he mean by this? Yeah, so what, this is... Yeah, yeah what, what do those sorry. words mean and, and who was he? So Pierre Masudi was a guy, I, I don't use his real name um, because he didn't want me to, but he's a colonel in the Congolese army um, who um, grew up with a particular notion of war. This you know, As I say in the book, he, he grew up watching war films with his dad and those war films projected away, you know, the kind of model, the Clausewitzian model of warfare, where you use war to, um, uh, to impose your will on another. 
to extract victory, to dominate other people, and then you win. And you know, it's it's that's what heroism is: is prevailing in in, in a noble fight. And he looked around himself and he looked at the army that he currently was working in. He didn't see any of that. He saw war as a means of eking out a living. He saw war as extracting uh, resources from the population that you're supposed to protect. He saw a war in which there was some sort of perverse symbiosis with the enemy. So the largest provider of um, weapons and ammunition to rebels in the Congo is the Congolese army itself. Uh, where people sell bullets, they still sell, he, you know, he would tell me about times they go to battle and he'd ask his people, you know, to open fire and they say, we don't, we only have five bullets left. <laughs> what happened to all the bullets? Wow. Well, they sold them. Uh, and often those bullets ended up in the hands of their enemies. And so, as he said, you know, we were often were being killed by our own bullets because we sell them to the enemy. And so, you know, he was looking around and he was disgusted by the army that he was in that had nothing to do with the army that he wanted to join in the first place. Understood. On in chapter nine, um, you prevent some present some alternative realities or counterfactual futures of what could have been done differently to prevent Congo from descending into the tragedy that has unfolded. Can you summarize these hypothetical scenarios? Um, what is different about Congo? What, what's unique or different, if anything, about Congo's path to civil war relative to other civil wars, such as Algeria, Afghanistan, Syria, or others? Mm. Yeah, so I think it is, it's useful to look at these inflection points uh, and reimagine history in different ways because it mm -hmm. makes it seem less deterministic, right? It's yeah. a tendency always to look at history and say, well, you know, it just had to be that way, especially if you're caught up in it. Mm -hmm. um, and so in my first book that I wrote, I talk a lot about the Rwandan genocide and what could have been done to present, prevent the genocide and to break up the refugee camps that were created in the Eastern Congo. And if you'd done that, then much of what, you know, much of what had what would follow would probably have been prevented in terms of the bloodshed. In this book, I look in particular at the the time of the transition, the the peace deal that, in many ways, was a very successful peace deal. I mean, they got all of the belligerents around a peace ta table. They got them to compromise. They got them to join a national government. They got them to integrate their armed forces into one national army. These were huge successes, easy to forget, and that was the work of foreign diplomats, obviously Congolese civil society, Congolese leaders, the United Nations. Um, and if you look at just uh, displacement, human displacement as a proxy for violence, then displacement in the wake of that peace deal declined fairly precipitously. So it went down from a high of 3.3 million people displaced in the Congo in 2001 to maybe to less than half of that in just the space of a year, which is a huge success. I mean, this is how people die in the Congo. People don't, most people in the Congo wars don't die because through direct violence, they die through displacement, hunger, malnutrition. That's what, that's how it happens. And so there was a huge success there. The problem is it wasn't maintained. It wasn't sustained. Um, and, and I think that uh, one of the main, there's, I think their emphasis on Rwanda is key it's very difficult to fix the Congolese state. That's a generational um, task. Uh, 
uh, and challenge that you know the Congolese will have to really deal with, and we have to help them with that. But that's that's not something you can fix in a couple of years. The um, the Rwandan involvement in the Eastern Congo really allowed for this escalation to take place that that brought an end to this or that really unraveled the peace deal. The creation of the CNDP and its successor movement, the M23, the Rwandan government was, you know, deeply, deeply involved in that. Um, and we were in a paradoxical situation where foreign, you know, Rwanda was a donor darling and to a certain extent remains a donor darling because of the many, its ability, it's you know, almost sort of mythical ability to rise like a phoenix out of the ashes, the genocide, rebuild its country against all odds. This is a story that's captivated many from Bill Clinton to, to uh, Bill Gates, to Rick Warren, the pastor, to uh, Starbucks, to Tony Blair. I mean, it's, Paul Kagame has many friends around the world. And it's part because of the story. And there's parts of that story that are absolutely true. Um, but the perverse thing about this situation is, is that during much of the time that I describe in my book, certainly around this time of the peace deal, over half of the budget, Rwanda's national budget was being funded by foreign donors, and sometimes more than that. Um, and yet the actions of the Rwandan government and its army in the Eastern Congo were creating a humanitarian crisis that it once again was, you know, being dealt with through the same donors spending money in the Eastern Congo. So uh, we really failed. Foreign, foreigners really failed in putting pressure, enough pressure, identifying the problem, identifying Rwanda's involvement, calling them out. And this is what we did, what foreigners, especially the United States, ended up doing in 2012. Um, they thought they looked the other way, they didn't understand it, or they believed that Rwanda really was in an existential threat. And I tackle all of those issues in my book. And I don't think that, and I think there was a, a misdiagnosis of the situation or not even a diagnosis of the situation. So that I think was one of the problems that could have been done, could have been dealt with differently. I think the other issue, there's, there's several other issues, I won't get into all of them here, but one other one that I wanted to talk to about, talk about briefly, is the international economic model that we apply to the Congo. Uh, as I mentioned previously, it was this model that um, the free market will end up liberating uh, creative dynamic forces in the Congo that will benefit everybody. And what happened was is that the free market opened up the Congo to foreign investment that then became captured by part of this, these political elites. That was that injected, you know, poison into the dem this fledgling democratic system, and so um, that is something that would that should have been very easy to, uh, to well, should have, should have been something to, we we should have anticipated, and then avoided. It was a you know the World Bank wrote the mining code in the Congo, and they basically was the Afghani mining code that they adopted to the Congo, because they wrote in Afghanistan as well. And this is something that I think should have been dealt with um, differently in the Congo. And I think that, you know, you could have, you could have imagined different ways of doing this, but there should have been some sort of trust fund, something created that would have allowed these profits to remain in the Congo, to have greater um, uh, checks and balances on this inflow of funds, something to constrain, um, to limit the, the, 
the vagaries of international capital during this critical time in Congo's trajectory. How did the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003 impact the situation in Congo in light of the Second Congolese Civil War um, playing out around that time? How did the invasion of Iraq impact the UN's proposed Operation Artemis, which was considered for Congo? Yeah, so I think the 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 U.S. invaded Iraq in 2002, um, and the French government in particular was not very happy with this. And I think that and the EU felt uh, somewhat sidelined. Um, and this was a fact. At the same time. Uh, you had uh, violence escalating in parts of the Eastern Congo, and especially in, in what is now Ituri province in the Eastern Congo, gruesome levels. Uh, and this for a variety of complicated reasons that I lay out in my book, but it was linked to the peace process, right? And so you have the U.S. pioneering one mode of international intervention in Iraq, very military, very heavy-handed, very much trying to get engaged in engineering of a new state a new democracy and a new state in the Middle East. And the French government um, at the time uh, and members of the European Union as well and members of the United Nations because it was deployed under UN authority said that, well, we need to have a different kind of model. And they were, there was an enormous, I think, um, many parts of the international system were deeply disenchanted with America's actions in, in Iraq. And there, there was a need to pioneer a different model of international solidarity, international of peace building, and a different model of peace building. And so the French, uh, at the French then deployed its foreign legion uh, with the backing with, within the French military apparatus to, to deal with this conflict in the Eastern Congo, this burgeoning uh, conflict in Ituri province. It was getting terrible. It was during the time of the transition, something needed to be done. And so, so the Iraq war really provided, I think, the context uh, for the French to act where they felt that we need to not only act because of the humanitarian imperative on the ground, but we need to act to show that a different kind of engagement is possible compared with US engagement in Iraq that's too heavy handed, that comes without legitimacy, without the buy-in of the local population. This is a different way of engaging. In your perspective, what makes the situation in Congo similar or different from other African civil wars, such as Sierra Leone, Liberia, Somalia, Sudan, and others? Well, some of those um, are very small. So Liberia and Sierra Leone are very small countries. And so I think the most, I think, obvious thing to say, and those are actually also relative success cases in the sense that the war is awful there uh, and it stopped. Mm -hmm. And we're and as as difficult as those situ countries, just difficult situations as it may be in, um, there is no widespread conflict in the Liberia or Sierra Leone today. Um, and so I think that's that's one uh, one way. There's many similarities too, but that's one way it's very different than those two countries. Um, with regards to um, the Sudan. The, I think there are many, I think, similarities um, as well, that some of which I've, I've mentioned in terms of the size of the country, um, 
one difference with Sudan is the geopolitical nature of the Sudanese conflict. Sudanese conflict really was involved um, the war on terror. It, it involved oil. It involved debates over Christianity and Islam that parts of the American political establishment were very invested in, especially the Christian right in the United States. Um, and all of those brought Sudan to the prominence of the United States that the Congo never had. Um, and so a lot, you know, the, the Save Darfur lobby, for example, in the United States, the activism around Save Darfur, these are things I think that were also need to be understood as, as part of those debates. Uh, that's the reason I think they also came to such prominence uh, in, in, in the United States, especially other parts of the West. Where, and the kind of violence you saw there um, was also something that was more gripping. The Congolese conflict, the violence of the Congolese conflict is, you know, it, it's, it's, it's harder to tell the story of the Congo than it is of those other countries. I often talk to journalists and they just, you know, they, they throw their hands up in the air often and say, how the hell am I supposed to tell the Congo conflict in 400 words to make it digestible and understandable right. to the broader public? Now that's hard in any anywhere, but you could resort to to tropes and stereotypes in Sudan. You know, not that they're terribly helpful sometimes, but about Arab versus Arabs versus blacks, Africans in, in Darfur over Christians versus Muslims. And those are often skewed and, and not accurate. But there's a certain kind of way you can spin the story that makes it intelligible to a Western, especially an American audience. And the way that the Congolese conflict it really isn't. Um, and I think that's been, you know, a challenge. Maybe it's been a boon as well, but it's certainly been a challenge for people um, working working on the Congo. So I'm sure that there's there's other um, there's other differences. Again, as I said, you know, if you look at South Sudan today, there's many aspects of the South Sudanese conflict today that look very much like the Congolese conflict, uh, in the sense that you have political elites at the center using violence to as a form of bargaining with people on the, on the periphery of the state. A lot of symbiosis between the national government and local actors. Um, violence has become a means of governance there too, much like as it has in the Congo. What triggered the violence in Ituri? Can you describe that specific situation in more detail for us? Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, the violence in Ituri, in a similar way to violence in the Kivu provinces to the south. Um, is um, um, violence in Ituri, a similar way to the Kibu provinces in the south, arose out over local, national, and regional reasons. And the local reasons are sort of similar. In Ituri, you have two main communities that were pitted against each other that featured in this violence, the Lendu community that's considered as agriculturalists and the Hema community who are considered to be pastoralists or cattle herders. Um, and once again, you know, there are these myths of origin that say that Hema integrated from in here. Now, there's not accusations that Hema are not Congolese, but certainly that they came from elsewhere. And now that they're here and now they're here. And so that's 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 similar. But the Ituri conflict didn't, uh, you know, the Kivu conflict started very early 1990, early 1990s, certainly by 1993, you had widespread conflict in the Kivus, even before the Great Congo Wars. The Ituri conflict didn't really start until 1999, 2000, 2001, when it really 
sped up because of other factors getting involved in these local conflicts over, over land uh, and identity um, and power. And those other factors were um, regional competition in particular. So you had uh, a rebel group being based in Ituri province, the RCDKML, that was um, initially linked to the uh, Ugandans, was backed by the Ugandan government against the Congolese government. Um, and there was then a leadership conflict within this armed group. And part of that group then, uh, then sort of disintegrated over time. And various factions then emerged that were backed alternatively and sometimes at the same time in a very confusing and dizzying array by the Ugandan and the Rwandans. And a proxy war broke out between the Ugandan government and the Rwandan government in Ituri province using local proxies um, for a host of complex reasons. But basically, the Ugandans and the Rwandans that had initially been Deep, deep allies, very, I mean, even personal allies with deeply entwined personal histories between those two countries, their alliance then broke, uh, broke apart in, in 1999 and 2000 over fighting in the Congo. And it saw themselves pit, pitted against each other in the Congo. And Ituri yeah. became part of that proxy war. Yeah. Uh, and so that really is where the war escalated to really gruesome levels. And Ituri took on a dynamic of its own after that. What occurred at the Goma Peace Conference? And in, in, also in the book, you allude to your personal experience attending that conference. Can you describe how you felt being present there and speak to the importance of that event? So the Goma Peace Conference was important because after you know, there was this big peace process in 2000 and that culminated in 2002 with a peace deal um, transitional government, elections held in 2006, and then violence escalated in the East. And nothing, there was no political process at that point to deal with it, right? And so from the entire, the, the first Congo War and then the second Congo War had, had initiated or created a political process. That's what you need. It's 101 peace building is you need a political process engage the different parties, bring them together, get them to discuss their differences, even if they're fighting on the battlefield, try to get a truce, and so on and so forth. And so violence escalated in the Eastern Congo in a much more amorphic, uh, um, amorphous rather, um, fragmented way with no peace process. The UN was not facilitating doing shuttle diplomacy between various parties. Um, fighting was the only way forward. And so in 2008, they, an initiative was put forward to try to create some sort of peace process to deal not just with the demands of different armed groups, but to try to get to the root causes, to try to deal with, talk about issues of land and power and ethnic identity and who is Congolese and who is not. So many laudable and I think very necessary objectives were put on the agenda. The problem is, and this is, I think, indicative for peace talks in the Congo in general is that they themselves become a means for um, not only for buying time, which is what often happens in peace talks, but they became a means for extraction of resources. And so, you know, my main memories of the peace, peace conference in Goma are, is the buffet 
because okay. you, you'd have you'd have breaks and then people at the break, there'd be coffee and then there'd be lunch. And the people would you go to these buffets at lunch and people would be and you had these you know rebel leaders and politicians and they would they would you know sit down at the table with their plates heaping high <laughs> with wow. every everything at the buffet they could possibly order. Wow. And it was sort of like a metaphor for everything that was wrong about the peace conference. They would get these exor- these exorbitant um per diems even people who lived in goma would get hundreds of dollars a day for attending the conference wow and so it was no wonder that the conference didn't come to an end very quickly wow people they saw this conference as way of buying time they were rearming they were not sincere and they were making money off talks and talks is always a good way of sort of buying off people and co-opting people so there was behind the week behind this and so this was all typical of uh, peace talks and bargaining in the Congo. That's, those were my main memories of the Goma Peace Conference that eventually, despite its very noble and legitimate aims, uh, ended up doing uh, accomplishing very little. Could, could you explain further how the Congolese civil war and the Rwandan genocide were and are interlinked? Can you explain the interconnection between the two in light of how we can understand Rwanda's role and place in Congo civil war. Right. This is a, this is a topic of a PhD dissertation here. So it's a, it's, it's a, I'll try to be succinct. Sure. The, the Rwandan government, so to the cliff notes of this is that the, there was a genocide in Rwanda in 1994, the RPF, which is the ruling party in Rwanda today, um, had been fighting a, a civil war in Rwanda against the Habyarimana government since 1990. And the genocide was a culmination really of that civil war um, in which the, the ruling government fell apart in a paroxysm of violence um, planned against largely the minority Tutsi community, but also against moderate Hutus uh, and killed somewhere between 800,000 and a million people in a hundred days. And, and also then fled the country and crumbled. And so it was also the moment of victory for the RPF. The RPF then comes to power under Paul Kagame in, in Rwanda. And as Paul, well, he wasn't officially president, but he eventually became president. And he then remains in power in Rwanda. And much of their post, um, much, much of their history as a party in power has been, you know, legitimized by this notion that they are, they were the ones who brought an end to the genocide, and they're the protectors of the Rwandan people against these this, the, these demons that lurk. Uh, these the genocide ideology, this notion, this, it's still there, and you need a strong hand to protect the people. Um, it is an authoritarian government. It's a government that is led largely by members of the Tutsi majority. Uh, even though ethnicity is uh, banned as a subject of discourse, a as a subject of political discourse, but it's pretty much um, frowned upon uh, to talk about in Rwanda and banned uh, for its political use. Um, and so the, the interventions of the Rwandan government in the Congo need to be read through that angle, both through the angle of the fact that it is it sees this legitimacy really tied to its notion of being able to protect the population against genocide ideology, against further attacks of the population. Security is the backbone of this government. Um, 
and so therefore uh, fighting against a, an enemy in the Eastern Congo that is really the successor, the, the inheritor of the mantle of genocide ideology, the FDLR, which was this, the, the people who perpetrated genocide fled into the Eastern Congo and eventually they created an organization called the FDLR. And so fighting a war against the FDLR meant made sure that genocide ideology would be kept front and center. And this it was a reminder to members of the political elites, to Ronans, that genocide ideology was alive and we needed to have a strong uh, a military response and sometimes an authoritarian response to, to get rid of it. Even when that genocide ideology, that, that FDLR as today has disintegrated and is barely uh, of any threat at all to the Rwandan government. Fighting a war against it keeps that memory, keeps that legacy alive. And that's important. It also um, keeps the military focused on an external enemy. And it also provides opportunities to manage that uh, military. Both at parts of the war, the Rwandan government made money off the war and allowed for that money to be redistributed. But at other times, it just allowed for the, the government to, to, sh to, to shuffle around um, uh, uh, military leaders and commanders. The biggest threat to the RPF is not democracy in Rwanda. There is very little democracy in Rwanda. The biggest threat to the RPF, the ruling party in Rwanda, it comes from its own army. Uh, and at various points in its history, um, it's been very worried about internal defections and dissent within that army, uh, especially because there are parts of that army that don't like Paul Kagame very much. Um, uh, for a variety of reasons. And so in 2010, when the former head of the army, the chief of staff of the army, uh, Kayumba Nyamwasa, defected, that created a lot of worry within the government. Um, the head of the intelligence service, Patrick Kergea, also defected. He was eventually assassinated by the Rwandan government in exile in South Africa. And so this as well is another angle that, through which we need to understand their interventions in Eastern Congo. It's through uh, a, a desire to keep a genocide ideology, uh, to remind people um, of the importance of uh, the RPF as a, as a bulwark against that genocide ideology, uh, but and also it is a means of suppressing and managing dissents within the military forces. Um, yeah, I think those are uh, some of the key. And also, I think we need to understand that this military, the decision-making apparatus, because of all of these reasons, because you're dealing with uh, a fairly authoritarian government um, uh, run by a, a very strong-willed man, Paul Kagame, who inspires fear in many within that organization, um, and an organization that, as many diplomats said to me, they have a bunker mentality when it comes to the Congo. So this this one percent ideology that we must treat even the slightest threat as an absolute certainty. Uh, it's that sort of bureaucratic mindset uh, into the dis dysfunctional decision making effort that sometimes makes decisions with regards to the Congo that don't seem rational to people outside the organization, which is why many diplomats, when I approach them, and say, look, here's the evidence that Rwanda is supporting the CNDP in 2008. They said, no, it's, it's, why would they do that? It's not in their interest to do that. It doesn't make sense. Uh, and yet they were doing it. And we came to know and, under, and, and have proof that they were doing it later on. And in part, it's because of where we need of, of where they come from and how they work internally as an organization, the RPF. In your perspective, what does the future hold for the Congolese civil war? 
do you feel pessimistic about the years ahead? I feel pessimistic and optimistic. I mean, I feel pessimistic in the sense that the dynamics that have been spawned by this war, created by this war, forged by this war, are dynamics that by their very nature are extremely difficult to dismantle, to get rid of. Um, this is, you know, I, I quote, um, I, I quote Goethe at the beginning of the book, the, the, the ghost that I called, I can't get rid of. Uh-huh. And that comes from, um, that comes from his poem, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, that we all know because of Mickey Mouse and Fantasia, right? Yes. And so there's that, the, the, it's there's Mickey Mouse in the basement with all these brooms he's trying to sweep up. And so he creates more brooms because he thinks they're going to help him sweep up the mess that he made, but then just make more of a mess. And it's, that's what Goethe is talking about. He's talking about obviously modernity, but it applies to the Congo as well in the sense that the dynamics that have been created through the Congo war have created self-reinforcing and self-perpetuating interests uh, in the conflict that are very difficult to remove. It's going to require, it's a generational struggle that's going to require um, restructuring the Congolese state, making it, you know, right now politicians in Kinshasa don't need to care about the conflict in the East. It's not going to get them kicked out of power or very rarely will get to kick them out of, get them kicked out of power. Um, and that needs to change. Um, in a similar way, I think that, uh, you know, as I, as I pointed out, outsiders and donors have often not helped and gotten things wrong with regards to conflict dynamics in the Eastern Congo. And so I think that uh, in terms, my pessimism comes from that, that the nature of the dynamics today in the Congo are much more difficult to deal with than they would have been 20 or 30 years ago. And that one of these, once these things get set in motion, they become very difficult to stop. Mm-hmm. And so that's, it's, it's a system. It's a system, not, it's not one person. It's not, it's, it's a system and a system is by its very nature difficult, difficult to change and to dismantle. But my na- the, the reason for my optimism is, is from having lived in the Congo for some time and working every day with Congolese, there's an enormous, and this is gonna sound kind of trite um, and corny, but there's an enormous dynamism that you find in Congolese society it comes also from this almost this, the same things I mentioned at, as perhaps negative characteristics, this fragmentation. Another way of saying fragmentation is pluralism. Right. Congo is an extremely plural society. Right. Um, and not one where this creativity or this energy can be bridled very easily or restricted very easily. Um, and that's different than it was under Mobutu. Mobutu did restrict it. He put it in a he checked it, he put it in a straitjacket. And that is now almost impossible to imagine. The, you know, this is, it's not always positive. There are a thousand media outlets in the Congo and they're often spouting stuff, you know, that I do not agree with and misinformation. And these are problems we know about in the United States and elsewhere. You know, these are problems inherent in plural societies now, especially disinformation and things of the like. Um, but you also have um, a really, uh, astounding commitment to this thing called democracy that has never really benefited Congolese a whole lot, but a a, a commitment also to reforming and restructuring the Congolese state. So we do some, we do opinion polling in the Congo and and part of this opinion polling, we asked Congolese, this was a few years ago, we asked them, you know, um, what do you want? Do you want elections? Do you want development or you want security? Or do you want a mix of these three? Uh, And the answer, and this, you know, I thought, 
and we're this is a cross section of the Congolese population. So most of the people replying are people who make less than a dollar a day, who are not educated and who are based in rural areas. That is the that's the average Congolese. And mm. overwhelmingly, they responded, "We want elections," or we or you can't disentangle the three. Right. And for me, that was astounding. I mean, if I was a, a poor peasant in the Eastern Congo who had to walk to market every day with cassava on my back and was then extorted and abused by rebel groups or Congolese police or army on my way to get there, you know, I would probably say I want security. But I think the understanding is, this is my speculation, I guess, or my analysis of the polling that we did, is that they understand that you can't have that uh, those other things without reforming the state. The state is at the center. It's always been the prize in the Congo has been the state since independence. The prize has been, they call it Bula Matari, which is, the, which is what people called Henry Morton Stanley when he was colonizing the Congo in the mm -hmm. early days. They called him Bula Matari, which in Kikongo language means the breaker of rocks. The, the state has always has been this sort of Leviathan, it's literally the Leviathan, like Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan. That's kind of, you, you know, you see those images of Leviathan uh, lurking over, that's kind of also in the imaginary of many Congolese, I think, how they see the state. And I think that there's an understanding that you can't have freedom. You can't have all these other beautiful things without having um, a reforming, transforming the Congolese state. And so it's, it's in a lot of that energy, it's in the optimism, you know, it's hard to go to the Congo and be pessimistic for too long because there's, there's such beauty there and there's such um, energy uh, and drive there. So yes, yeah, alongside the suffering uh, that's very real uh, and the tragedy that, you know, is, 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 is awful you have that. And that's what, that's what gives me enormous, I mean, otherwise, you know, I, I couldn't do this work for a very long time. The Congo is a very inspirational place. And so I've been very fortunate to work on it. On that note, I wanted to end by conveying my utmost gratitude to you for our dialogue today, for the erudition that you shared, and for all the effort and sacrifice that went into producing this marvelous book that I feel grateful to have read and feel grateful to be sharing with our listeners in this dialogue. Thank you. And, and thanks to all the listeners. It's been a true pleasure. Thanks again. My pleasure. Um, one last thing to ask you is what are you working on next as your subsequent project? So um, I continue to be the director of the Congo Research Group at New York University. And so that, that is, you know, it's my, it's a job on the side. I'm also a university professor here in Vancouver. And so I, I teach and um, I do all the other things that a professor does. But um, I manage the Congo Research Group. That's a, a lot of work. It's a fantastic team. They, we produce, um, we have lots of different projects with the Congo Research Group. Um, we're working on climate change financing in the Congo, for example, understanding how that's spent. The Congo Basin is one of the, is the lungs of Africa. It's one of the largest rainforests in the world. In fact, I think it's the second largest rainforest in the world after the Amazon. And so that's an interesting project, understanding how that money is being used. Um, how much money they get and how it's being used. We continue to work on violence in the East. Uh, so we have, there's ongoing massacres around the town of Beni, for example, in Northeastern Congo. We're trying to figure out what's, who's behind it, what those dynamics are. Well, as you can tell, I'm very interested in the Congolese state. And so we have a bunch of different research projects and understanding 
the, um, the challenges or obstacles to demobilization and security sector reform in the Congo. So that's sort of with the Congo Research Group and a whole bunch of other stuff that we're doing with them. You can go to congoresearchgroup.org to check that work out. The, in addition to that, um, I have another big research project that's new for me that's now looking at not armed mobilization, but nonviolent peaceful mobilization and across the African continent. And so I'm working on this with my um, friend and colleague, Fred Bauma, who himself is a civil society, a social movement activist in the Congo. And we, over the next few years, will be looking across the African continent and engaging with youth movements there. And the reason for that is that, um, you know, it, it became increasingly obvious to me over the course of my research that the, as, you know, as you could probably tell from this conversation, that the solutions of many of these problems do not lie in, tech, in technocratic fixes uh, from development agencies about, you know, how to design the best demobilization program or what, what best form of cooperative, coffee cooperative, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The, you know, justice, freedom, emancipation, these things will come through by mobilizing and through by people, by people asking for it. And so that's why, and you can see this in the Congo, you can see brave movements such as Lucha that's risen up in the Congo. And so the, the goal there is to try to figure out what's happening on the African stage. Uh, and because there's many of these movements across Africa, some of which have been very successful and to understand what's going on there and to be able to engage with that literature as well. It sounds like an extraordinary array of important and necessary initiatives and projects that you have on the go. Thank you. I wish you only the best of luck in fulfilling them and wanted to simply end by saying thank you for an incredible book and a very worthwhile conversation. I'm humbled by how much I've learned from you and by how much our listeners will gain both from your book and from this dialogue. Thanks, Aaron. As we bring this interview to a close, this is your host, Ari Barbalat, on the New Books Network channel, New Books in African Studies. I've been in dialogue today with Jason Stearns. Jason Stearns is the author of The War That Doesn't Say Its Name, The Unending Conflict in the Congo, published by Princeton University Press 2021. Jason is assistant professor at the School for International Studies at Simon Fraser University and director of the Congo Research Group at New York University. Thank you wholeheartedly. Thanks, Ari.